Psalm 119. You are aware, I'm sure, that this is the longest psalm in the Bible. I know I have described the literary features of this psalm for you, so I don't think I need to go over that again. I've also pointed out that this psalm is a prayer, that once you get past about the first three verses, every verse in the psalm, right up to the very last verse, with but one exception, is addressed to God. The psalmist is speaking to God. There is that one exception. I don't know if I can find it. Oh, it's in verse 115, where the psalmist says, Depart from me, ye evildoers, for I will keep the commandments of my God. So in that one instance, the psalmist is addressing the evildoers, telling them to keep away, basically. Every other verse in the psalm, after you reach, um, like verse 4, they are all addressed to God in prayer. So what an impressive prayer. Today I want to call your attention to that section of the psalm that begins in verse 25. Psalm 119, verse 25. This is under the Hebrew letter Daleth. This is God's word. Let us hear it as it's now read. The psalmist says, My soul cleaveth unto the dust. Quicken thou me according to thy word. And would you note there that he's talking to God. This is his petition. Quicken thou me according to thy word. I have declared my ways, and thou heardest me. Teach me thy statutes. Make me to understand the way of thy precepts. So shall I talk of thy wondrous works. My soul melteth for heaviness. Strengthen thou me according unto thy word. Remove from me the way of lying, and grant me thy law graciously. I have chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments have I laid before me. I have stuck unto thy testimonies. O Lord, put me not to shame. I will run the way of thy commandments when thou shalt enlarge my heart. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. Let's seek the Lord in prayer before we begin our study this afternoon. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now, we do pray that thou wilt help us to understand the ways of the Lord. Help us to understand our duty to our God. Help us to strive for the right thing in the right way. And we pray, O Lord, that thou wilt help us to avoid the extremes that are temptations in the Christian life, an extreme to neglecting the law altogether, recognizing as we do that we're not under law but under grace, and and help us to avoid the other extreme, O Lord, of becoming legalists and treating thy law as if we were bound by it in order to gain the blessings of God Lord, grant us proper understanding into the things of thy law so that we may walk uprightly before thee. 
And we'll thank thee in Jesus' name. Amen. If I could call your attention in particular to a verse that I'm pretty sure is unlike any other verse in this psalm, and perhaps anywhere even to be found in the Bible. When you look at that text in verse 29, where the psalmist prays, Remove from me the way of lying, and grant me thy law graciously. Two petitions there. Remove from me the way of lying. The second petition, and that's the one I want to focus on. And grant me thy law graciously. Do you know of any other verse in the Bible that is quite like that? Grant me thy law graciously. In this section of the 119th Psalm, we meet up immediately with a condition that must be overcome. Okay, when the psalmist says in verse 25, My soul melteth for heaviness, or my soul cleaveth unto the dust. That's verse 25. Verse 28, my soul melteth for heaviness. Verse 29, the first petition of the two I just pointed out, remove from me the way of lying. And that verse is very interesting for the way it reveals the psalmist's knowledge of inbred sin. Notice that he doesn't pray that he would be removed from the way of lying as if to suggest that lying was something outside of his soul that he didn't want to come near to him, nor did he want to go near it. No, rather he prays, remove from me the way of lying. Do you see how he recognizes that the way of lying is something that lies latent in his heart that he wants extracted from him the way a dentist pulls a tooth, I suppose. Oh, deliver me from the way of lying. You ever notice that when it comes to this matter of lying, it's not something that requires any instruction. You never had to set a child on your lap and say, Son, now if you ever decide you want to tell a lie, let me tell you how that's done. Uh, they never need that kind of instruction, do they? Uh, the way lies latent in their hearts, and the psalmist recognizes his need for deliverance from it. So we discover in this section the condition of the psalmist being bowed down in humility cleaving to the dust, which says in effect that he feels so stuck, if you will, to this present evil world. Lord, I'm so stuck here. It's like I can't get above or beyond this world. My focus is here. I feel like I'm just stuck in the quagmire here. You might say he feels like the serpent in Genesis 3 with the weight of a curse upon him, which forces him to slither in the dust like that serpent and never be able to rise above the dust. There's an awful weight upon him, the weight of Christian's burden, such as what we find in Pilgrim's Progress, that melts his soul and presses upon him with a heaviness that he doesn't have the strength to bear. His statement in verse 32 indicates to us 
that he feels his heart toward God to be constricted. Listen to what he says in that verse. I will run in the way of thy commandments when thou shalt enlarge my heart. That shows us, doesn't he? He feels the burden that before he will run in the way of God's commandments, he first needs for God to do something. He needs for God to enlarge his heart. He feels the need for a greater heart capacity for love to Christ and love for holiness and love for God's word. Does it sound like a familiar condition to you? Is this anything at all that you can relate to? One of the things I love about the book of Psalms, you can find in this book graphic descriptions of the condition of the heart that the Christian experiences time and again. So you find this awful condition revealed in this section of the psalm. You find also what is needed in order for the psalmist to gain victory over this condition. He needs to be quickened or revived or made alive, according to verse 25. He needs for his understanding to be deepened and expanded, according to verse 27. He needs strength ministered to his soul, verse 28, and he needs his heart to be enlarged, verse 32. The psalmist also recognizes what impact these things will have upon his life once they are granted by God. Notice what he says in verse 32, I will run in the way of thy commandments when thou shalt enlarge my heart. Oh, it won't be hesitant obedience to the law of God. It won't be reluctance or a strain to overcome resistance. He will run in the way of God's commandments if God will only hear and answer his prayer and enlarge his heart. To be able to run in the way of God's commandments should be the desire of every Christian's heart. A man who can run, you see, is a man who has strength. A man who can run is a man who is not weighed down with cumbersome burdens. Isaiah 40 speaks to us of a man waiting on the Lord who mounts up with wings of an eagle and he runs without growing weary. I can remember a number of years ago on one of our visits up to the city of La Crosse, a few of us made the hike up the road, which leads to Granddad's Bluff. If you ever go to La Crosse, make sure you visit Granddad's Bluff. It uh, sits high above the city, some 700 feet. And there is a road that will take you up there. You can drive it. You can ride a bike of it, up it if you're a glutton for punishment. Or you can walk it if you prefer. They actually have part of the road designated as a walking path. Going up it can be very challenging. Um, I think of that when I think of our Sunday school lesson this morning in Pilgrim's Progress, going up the hill difficulty, a section we've just completed. And uh, by the time you get to the top, you're tired and you're winded. Coming down, on the other hand, is really very simple. And I, I can remember one instance when we got new, not too far from the bottom, I decided to run. 
and I was running downhill. And running downhill was like running without becoming winded. I wasn't running and becoming out of breath. I wasn't running and becoming weary because I was going downhill. Now let's transfer all of this into the realm of spiritual things. Oh, that we might run in the way of the obedience of faith without growing weary. And that we might pursue after Christ himself to enjoy communion with him without being weighed down by the things of this world. This is what the psalmist desired, and this is what we as Christians desire. I will run in the way of thy commandments when thou shalt enlarge my heart. May God grant it to us all. Now, there is one thing in this section that I passed over in my analysis of it, and that is our text, because I want to focus on it in particular. If we're going to gain spiritual strength and enlargement of heart that we need to follow after Christ with all our hearts, then there is one other essential thing that we're going to need, and that thing is found in verse 29. Notice what it says at the end of the verse, remove from me the uh, the way of lying, and grant me thy law graciously. Grant me thy law graciously. There are a lot of things that occur repetitively in this psalm, but that statement isn't one of them. In fact, I don't know, as I said a moment ago, I don't know of another statement quite like that in all of the Bible. Here is the answer to both sides of the controversy between legalism and antinomianism. You know what those two terms mean? You homeschoolers, I hope you all know that. What is legalism? Well, that is an undue emphasis on the law that suggests there is a way you can gain something from God as a reward of your obedience to the law. Antinomianism Anti is a word that means against. Nomianism contains the word law within it based on the Greek. Antinomianism is that attitude that says, I don't have to have a care in the world with regard to the law. I am free from the law by virtue of my salvation. And so I don't have to give a thought to what I do or the consequences that follow. Both of them are erroneous views, legalism and antinomianism. And I think I could argue that the solution to both is found in this petition of our text, grant me thy law graciously. Let me call your attention to three lessons that we can learn from that petition. Grant me thy law graciously. The first lesson I would draw your attention to is this. The nature of the problem between law and grace. The nature of the problem between law and grace. I was happy to impress this upon the students that I'm teaching, suggesting to them that you've got to know the nature of this problem because you are going to be ministering to people that are going to be facing this problem on one side or the other, and you will probably 
uh, experience uh, accusations of leaning one way or the other yourself. And so you need to know the nature of the problem between law and grace. Grant me thy law graciously. We certainly see in that verse a distinction between law and grace as well as a connection between them. And if you're going to understand and appreciate how the law functions and what grace means and how the two things work together, then it becomes necessary for you to know and appreciate behind any shadow of a doubt the nature of God's law and the meaning of God's grace. And like I say, it's because of misunderstanding of the nature of the law that some Christians vehemently oppose it as serving any function in the Christian's life. These Christians are well aware of statements such as what Peter makes before the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 and verse 10, where Peter says before that council, Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. There were members in that council, there were among the early Jewish Christians, those that believed that the law had the wrong kind of application to the Christian's life. The same kind of application, basically, that it had in apostate Judaism. They came to regard it largely as still springing from the covenant of works. They also, those that vehemently oppose any application of the law in our day, they know the statement that's recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 17. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. These two statements certainly call our attention then to a distinction that definitely exists between law and grace. And there is no denying such a distinction. But when this distinction is magnified to the point that law is pitted against grace and grace against law, then the potential exists for all manner of confusion to ensue. Interesting to note how often the issue of law versus grace is addressed in the New Testament epistles. The church at Corinth thought they were magnifying God's grace by overlooking a terrible instance of flagrant immorality within their own ranks. An instance of immorality that was horrendous even by pagan Gentile standards. In their case, grace had, in a sense, eliminated the law. The case was very much different with the Galatian church. The law was being magnified uh, in such a way that there was a practical, if not a formal, denial of grace. And the result was a loss of liberty and a stronghold of bondage. Paul makes reference in his first epistle to Timothy 
of those desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. 1 Timothy 1.7 So the problem of a lack of understanding of the nature of the law and the meaning of grace can be traced all the way back to the earliest days of the New Testament church. And I dare say that such a problem continues right up to the present day in which we live. How many Christians, and indeed how many churches today, can be characterized as churches in bondage, or as churches that are so free and loose in their conduct that they bring reproach to the name of Christ? I think it could be argued that in either case, such a church is in bondage. It's in bondage either to a misunderstanding of how the law of God applies, or it's in bondage to the lusts of the flesh in the world. In both cases, in the case of the legalistic church, and in the case of what you might call the free and loose church, there can be found misunderstanding about the nature of the law and the meaning of grace. Some while back, I read the biography of John Wesley, written by Ian Murray. I had wanted to read that book for quite some time, because John Wesley has always been something of a mysterious character to me. There are those that suggest that Wesley denied the doctrine of justification by faith. And he had some strange views of Christian perfectionism. He never thought that he himself had ever reached Christian perfection, but he did believe that some Christians he knew had attained it. Ian Murray does a great job in that biography of sorting through these complexities in Wesley's life. And it appears that Wesley, for the most part, you could say, was guilty of doublespeak. He would affirm the truth of justification, but in another setting, he would deny it. It turns out that the thing that contributed to Wesley's confusion was his attitude toward so many that named the name of Christ but were anything but holy in their lives. If the doctrine of justification was the force behind their lack of holiness, then the doctrine of justification by faith, and especially the doctrine of the imputed righteousness of Christ, being the grounds for our acceptance with God, that can't be right in Wesley's estimation. And the way he would deny it would be to look at the lives of those who professed to believe it and be so unimpressed by what he saw that he would conclude that their doctrine was incorrect. So he went back and forth between what he could see the Bible taught and what he saw that was so unimpressive in his estimation in the lives of many Christians. When you stop and think about it, you should be impressed by the challenge to represent the doctrines you believe in by living lives that are consistent with your doctrine. Take heed unto thyself, Paul writes to Timothy, 
1 Timothy 4, 16. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Two things then that must be taken heed to, yourself and your doctrine. You need to understand the gospel and you need to understand how to live in light of the gospel. Both of these things are envisioned by the psalmist when he prays, remove from me the way of lying. Some other versions translate the verse, put false ways far from me. The reference being to every deviant view of truth in the gospel. Put lying and false views away from me. Anything that clouds or obscures my vision to the glorious truth of the gospel of grace. Put those things away from me. And, O Lord, grant me thy law graciously. So we see something of the nature of the problem between law and grace. It's an age-old problem. Would you consider with me next the solution to that problem. Law and grace are, to be sure, two distinct categories of God's revelation. But our text reveals to us that there's also a connection between the two, a compatibility, if you will, between law and grace. Grant to me thy law, the psalmist prays. Later in the psalm, and I've always found this to be amazing. The psalmist expresses his love for God's law. Verse 97, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 113, I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. Verse 127, Therefore I love thy commandments above gold. Yea, above fine gold. You ever read such statements as those and wondered to yourself, why does the psalmist love something that condemns him? Why does the psalmist love that which he fails to measure up to and that which he transgresses countless times? How can he love that which calls with inflexible justice for his everlasting destruction? Perhaps he's unaware of the truth that Peter would later speak before the Jerusalem council when Peter referred to the law as a yoke which neither he nor his fathers were able to bear? Was the psalmist unaware of the heaviness of that yoke? Or was he so puffed up in pride as to think that he could and did measure up to the standard of God's law? The law, and I Take it that you know this, it's often been misunderstood over the course of the history of the Jews. One of the things that Christ accomplishes in the Sermon on the Mount is to clarify many misconceptions about the law that were prevalent at the time that Christ walked in this world. You may recall from your reading of that sermon or from studies in the Sermon on the Mount uh, the oft-repeated formula Christ uses, ye have heard, but I say unto you, 
No less than six times do you find that formula. And the thing to note is that in the course of those clarifications, Christ made the yoke of the law even heavier, not lighter. Matthew 5, verse 21, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever shall say to his brother, Reka, shall be in danger of the council, and whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Verse 27, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Is that what the psalmist loves? A law law that not only weighs action, but weighs words and thoughts and motives. The thing that must be ever kept in mind when it comes to the law is that the problem lies with us and not with the law itself. This is essentially Paul's argument about the law in Romans 6 and 7. Romans 7, verse 12, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. This is certainly a contributing factor as to why the psalmist loved the law, He saw it that way, holy and just and good. He saw, you might say, the compatibility of the law with the perfect character of God. For we know, he writes, Romans 7, verse 14, that the law is spiritual. So it's holy, it's good, it's just, and it's spiritual. So when you're thinking about somebody that you would say is spiritually minded, what should his attitude be toward the law, if the law is spiritual? But here, then, the problem, as we go on to read, but I am carnal, sold under sin. You see what I mean when I say the problem is with us, the problem is not with the law. The law is good, the law is right, the law is holy, the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. The law is holy, but I am defiled. The law is just, but I am not. The law is good, but we are sinful. The law is spiritual, but we are carnal, How then can the psalmist love the law? Well, the solution to the seeming dilemma is found in the words of our text. Grant me thy law, the psalmist says, but he wants it granted a particular way. Grant me thy law graciously. Graciously teach me your law, another version reads. Graciously grant me your law, still another English version reads. I'd like the translation of our authorized version, 
because it seems to place an even stronger emphasis on how the psalmist wanted the law granted to him. Grant me thy law graciously. And I would suggest to you that you don't want the law granted to you in any other way. If you would have the law granted to you apart from grace, that would be like uh, throwing a cinder block to a drowning man instead of a life jacket or a life preserver. And so the question becomes a matter of how this is to be done. How can God take something that amounts to a heavy yoke with inflexible justice and acts like a heavy weight to bring us down into everlasting condemnation? And the solution is to be found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I believe that this is where covenant theology shines brightly. I referenced the Sermon on the Mount a moment ago, that sermon where Christ shows us how the law penetrates not only the actions, but words, thoughts, and intents of the heart. And in that same sermon, Christ declares, for the very first time, I might say, Christ declares his purpose for coming into the world. Romans 5.17 gives us the heart of covenant theology and shows us the way we can be, uh, how the law can be granted to us graciously. Romans 5.17, Christ saying, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And as you see Christ as the second Adam, Christ who takes to himself all the obligations of the covenant of works that the first Adam failed to fulfill, as you see Christ providing to his Father the obedience not only in his life, but in his life and death in such a way as to satisfy the justice of the law completely, then you can understand how the law can be granted to us graciously. You are no longer under the dread of condemnation of that law, for there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You are no longer under the law as a covenant, as a covenant of works. The covenant obligations have all been met by Christ, your federal head and your substitute, how then can you view the law when it's granted graciously? You can see it in such a light that you love it the way the psalmist loved it. You love it because you see it as an expression of how man lived before he fell into sin. You see it as an expression of how Christ lived when he walked in this world. And you see it as an expression of how you will one day live yourself when you're perfectly conformed to Christ in glory. Oh, a day is coming when we will measure up to what the law demands. You can love it because you understand how it's been granted to you graciously. 
Grace, you know, speaks to you as the principle that governs every dealing that God takes with you. Paul says in Romans 5.21 that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. I love that statement that says grace reigns through righteousness. And what that means is there's no incompatibility now between law and grace. Grace will always be the governing principle of God's dealings with you because grace is founded upon satisfied justice or the law being fulfilled. The solution then between the seeming tension, and I call it seeming tension because there's not really any tension there. It just seems like there's tension between law and grace based upon our misunderstanding of its compatibility. The solution to this tension is for the law to be granted graciously. Remove from me the way of lying and grant me thy law graciously. Like I say, you dare not think that you would want the law to be granted to you any other way. To be granted the law apart from grace, like I said a moment ago, would be like handing a drowning man in the sea an anchor instead of a life preserver. Apart from grace, the law brings you down, down to the deepest hell, For that reason, some Christians wrongfully view the law when they find deliverance from its condemning power. The psalmist loved the law, and I believe our text shows us how he and how we can love the law. We love it when it's granted to us graciously. We love it when we see in it the character of our God. This is why it makes no sense to me to search, as some Christians do, for ways to abrogate the law of God through salvation. If all the law amounts to is a set of arbitrary rules invented by God to be foisted upon men, then I can see why some Christians would want to contend for it being eliminated. But if we see in it, especially in the fulfillment of it, the righteousness that Christ earned for us, that is imputed to us, then we will love the law and will delight in our freedom to strive for it. So there is a solution to the seeming tension, and that solution is for the law to be granted graciously. I made reference to that author, I think some while back, Edward Fisher, The Marrow of Divinity, when he makes reference to a threefold perspective on the law, the law of works. Thank God we're saved from that because Christ fulfilled it. The law of faith, that is the law that stands in contrast to works, We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved based on his merit, not our own. And then there is what the author calls, and this is a scripture phrase too, the law of Christ, which is our obedience to the law from hearts that are filled with praise and thanksgiving and are freed from the dread 
of its condemning power. May God help us to view it right, that we may walk in it in ways that are pleasing to our God, from hearts of praise and thanksgiving to Christ, who fulfilled that law for us, making it possible then for God to grant us his law graciously. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring our meeting to a close, we thank thee for thy grace. We thank thee for thy mercy. We thank thee for thy righteousness. We thank thee, Lord, that the law is good and holy and righteous and spiritual. Help us not to view it any other way. Help us not, O Lord, to think in deceived pride that we measure up to its standard, for we don't. But, O Lord, how we thank Thee that we have a Savior who did fulfill it completely, came into this world for that very purpose, so that we might be saved and the law might be granted to us graciously. Help us, therefore, Lord, to follow after thee in the obedience of faith, looking to Christ for our help. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.